0: learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank Barry for his recent donation. Barry is a regular supporter of this show, and I thank him dearly for his support. If you're able to support the show, please go to achshow.com, click the banner at the top, or scroll down on the right-hand side and avail yourself of one of the two books down there now today is thursday so of course it's time for the weekly visit of our dear friend dr peter hammond for a show entitled the real story behind the attack on pearl harbor 80 years ago so let's bring up right now peter are you with us
1: i am thank you very much andrew
0: thank you Peter and of course we are coming up to the 80th anniversary I was privileged many years ago Rick Adams set this up for me the late great Rick Adams who does the disclaimer at the start of this show uh, with Thomas Kimmel who was Admiral Kimmel's grandson and he was a speaker he used to go on cruise ships and all sorts of things to um, talk about the Pearl Harbour attack and how his uh, grandfather was unfairly blamed for it and how his grandfather spent the rest of his life um, bemoaning the way he was treated and trying his very best to get history written accurately rather than the way it was. But Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic?
1: Well, certainly Admiral Kimmel was made a scapegoat and uh, it, it's just, uh, really unconscionable the way he was treated. Do you know that there's still many classified documents concerning uh, Pearl Harbor that are still Uh, unavailable to the public. So, for example, um, there's key reports in Winston Churchill's records, Prime Minister Winston Churchill of Great Britain, um, which in the UK Public Records Office, containing Churchill's most secret wartime intelligence briefs, um, are still sealed. And uh, there's uh, a whole lot, there's hundreds of documents relating to the Japanese situation 1941, which are closed. And Uh, They first marked them closed for 75 years. Now, we've passed that, but they still uh, have a lot of it closed. The magic intelligence files released by the United States um, uh, still don't uh, um, include a whole lot of the ultra-intelligence files relating to Pertain, which were meant to have been released by the British government, but the British are still holding on to a whole lot of information. Remember that both the British naval intelligence and the American naval intelligence were reading Japanese codes uh, going back for many years before Pearl Harbor. So they they had advanced knowledge of just about everything. And the fact that they're still hiding many of the communications between Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt is extraordinary. So the facts are, or the story is, on Sunday morning, the 7th of December 1941, the Japanese launched a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific fleets at Pearl Harbor destroying the fleet and forcing the United States into World War II. Well, that's what we were taught at school. But everything except for the date is uh, basically a myth. Uh, The narrative that we've been given, um, that it was a surprise attack and uh, that the Pacific fleet was actually destroyed. Well, the Pacific fleet was not actually destroyed. All the American aircraft carriers were conveniently absent at the time of the attack, which is interesting. And the United States government was not surprised at all by it. They knew exactly what was going to happen. And the fact that this is meant to have been an unprecedented attack is also just false. So on the night of the 11th to 12th of November 1940, over a year before, British naval forces under Admiral Andrew Cunningham, including the aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious, launched ferry swordfish biplane torpedo bombers on the... Mediterranean Sea, uh, Italian Navy, the Regina Marina, the the Royal Navy of of Italy, their battle fleet at anchor in the harbor of Taranto. And despite the shallow depth of the water, the aerial torpedoes proved devastatingly effective despite even having some um, submarine nets uh, uh, that they had in the harbor. And this crippled the Italian Navy, which lost half of its battleships in one night. The Royal Navy raid on Toronto Bay marked the ascendancy of air power over sea power, and the fleet air arm proved to be the Navy's most devastating weapon. And bear in mind that the Imperial Japanese Navy had initially been trained by the Royal Navy of Great Britain, and the Imperial Japanese Navy had studied the Royal Navy's tactics and strategies most carefully. So it should have been obvious that the Imperial Japanese Navy, the third most powerful Navy in the world in 1941, with 10 fleet aircraft carriers would begin practicing with torpedo bombers and carefully evaluating the possibility of them being used against the American Pacific Fleet based in Pearl Harbor. Now, Japan had the largest and most modern aircraft carrier fleet in the world in 1941. So, Japan had seven aircraft carriers and yet uh, Japan had uh, 11 aircraft carriers at that time in the Pacific And America actually only had three aircraft carriers in the Pacific. Britain had eight aircraft carriers, of which only one was operational in the Indian Pacific Ocean. It started with 11 aircraft carriers at the beginning of the war, but they had eight at this stage in 1941. But they only had one in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean to cover. So the claim that nobody could have anticipated a torpedo attack in shallow waters of a harbor before 7th December 1941 is completely false. The British had proved that torpedoes could be effective in the attack on the Italian Navy at Toronto Bay, 11th of November, 1940. The Royal Navy had used pretty obsolete biplanes uh, to deliver the torpedoes, and they'd been devastatingly effective. The U.S. Navy had discussed this threat in a June 1941 memorandum, and torpedo nets were considered to be installed in Pearl Harbor as a precautionary measure. But Admiral Kimmel and his staff testified that the decision not to install torpedo nets and booms in Pearl Harbor had been made by the Navy Department in Washington, D.C., not in Hawaii. He wanted torpedo nets, Washington, D.C., torpedo, uh, the suggestion, if you can use that term, uh, vetoed it. And so they didn't even have torpedo nets in Pearl Harbor, thanks to Washington, D.C. Now, there's a lot of documents relating to Pearl Harbor attack, which are still classified by the United States government and the British government and have been made public. Many of these documents are actually destroyed during the war. And some of the public records of the United Kingdom containing Churchill's most secret wartime intelligence briefs have been marked closed, including the sections dealing with events from November 1941 through to March 1942, which is when the United States entered the war. And so the question is, Was the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor unprecedented? Well, no, it wasn't. First of all, torpedo attacks had been done by the British, but uh, on the Italian Navy. But consider Meriz-el-Kabir. 17 months before Pearl Harbor, the British Royal Navy had attacked the French fleet at anchor at the coast of French Algeria. Now, the Battle of Meriz-el-Kabir on the 3rd of July 1940 resulted in the deaths of 1,297 French servicemen the sinking of French battleship and the damaging of five other naval ships of the French fleet. The combined air and sea attack was carried out against Britain's official ally, France. And this extraordinary attacking of an ally remains controversial and it created a lot of hostility between Britain and France, which has not been resolved yet. Britain argued that the times were desperate, invasion seemed imminent, the British government simply could not risk Germany seizing control of the French fleet, and the prominent British motive was thus dire necessity and self-preservation. Well, that's the official verdict. However, the French insisted that their terms of surrender with Germany did not require them handing over their fleet. The fleet was still in French-controlled territory. In fact, this is in North Africa, not even in Northern Europe. The British action was considered treacherous by the French, and still is. French ships that were in Alexandria, Egypt, who believed they were still allies of Britain, were shocked to be boarded, blockaded, seized by the Royal Navy at the same time. Also on the 3rd of July, French ships in Plymouth and Portsmouth in England were boarded and captured. And this included the French submarine Surcouffe, the largest submarine in the world at the time. And four other submarines and the battleships, Paris and Colbert, and the destroyers Triumph and Leopard and officers and sailors of the French Navy were killed in the struggles. And these attacks were justified by the British strategy of Copenhagen the fleet. Now, the term Copenhagen the fleets comes from Admiral Horatio Nelson's famous Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, just 2nd of April, 1801. This was the clear inspiration for the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Because although Denmark was neutral, officially neutral during the Napoleonic Wars, Britain was concerned that Denmark's considerable navy may be seized by the French if Denmark fell to the French, which it hadn't. And it never did. But the Battle of Copenhagen was a result of multiple failures of diplomacy. With the British enforcing a strict blockade of France and any country that traded with France, even neutral nations like Denmark, Sweden, Prussia were considered legitimate targets. Admiral Sahide Parker and Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson led the attack on the Danish capital at Copenhagen. And the British attack, during which... Admiral Nelson famously placed his telescope to his blind eye, ignoring the command to withdraw, was from the British perspective spectacularly successful. 1,600 Danish soldiers and sailors were killed or wounded. Most of the Danish Navy was either sunk or severely damaged or captured. Now, although a neutral country, Denmark was again attacked by the Royal Navy on the 16th of August to the 5th of September 1807 when the Royal Navy bombarded Copenhagen seized the Danish fleet as a precaution, just in case Denmark chose to join the French sometime in the future, although it never did. 3,000 soldiers and civilians, including 195 children in Copenhagen, died as a result of the British naval bombardment of the capital city. Now, as the majority of the Danish army was on the southern border to protect against a possible attack from France, which didn't come, this second assault on a neutral country was a scandal at the time somewhat didn't make it into British history books. Knowing that the Imperial Japanese Navy was modelled on the Royal Navy, these famous battles and strategies and tactics of Copenhagen the fleets of even neutral countries where a potential threat was perceived, including against Britain's French allies, and most tellingly at the Battle of Toronto when aircraft launched from aircraft carriers using torpedoes, had crippled the battle fleet. All of these should have been taken into consideration, and actually they were taken into consideration by the um, American Navy and by Admiral Kimmel in particular. And as we've seen, a lot of his suggestions were actually overruled by uh, the um, American Naval Department in Washington, DC. Many people may be surprised to know that Pearl Harbor was not the home port of the Pacific Fleet, that was San Diego. And it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's express instruction just a few months before Pearl Harbor to move the American Pacific Fleet from San Diego on the American mainland, 2,000 miles to the east towards Japan and put them in Pearl Harbor, which was a direct provocation and threat to Japan and maybe bait as well. Because as modern American films like Tora, Tora, Tora and Pearl Harbor tend to ignore all these historic precedents and to pretend that the attack on Pearl Harbor was unprecedented, unexpected, the first surprise attack by aircraft on tanks. On ships, generations have been deceived into thinking Harbor was a treacherous, unexpected and unprecedented attack. A day that will live in infamy. Okay. Uh, but that's just not true. And in the Bible we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. So William Henry Chamberlain, in America's Second Crusade, it's written and published in 1950, wrote, it is scarcely possible in the light of many known facts to avoid the conclusion that the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration sought the war which began at Pearl Harbor. The steps which made armed conflicts inevitable would have taken months before the conflict broke out. And General, Admiral, uh, General Albert Wedemeyer is quoted in Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed book as stating When on the sixth of December our intercepts told us that the Japanese were going to attack somewhere the very next day, whether in Central Pacific or in the south of the Philippines or the Dutch Indies, the President of the United States, as commander in chief of our military forces, should have gone on radio and broadcast to the whole wide world that he had irrefutable evidence of an immediate Japanese intention to strike. This would have alerted everybody from Singapore to Pearl Harbour. Even though inadequate in some cases to defend effectively, nevertheless, our forces would have been able to take a toll, would have blunted the Japanese attack, and they would have been given a chance. In Hawaii, the capital ships might have been moved out of the congested harbour to sea, where Admiral Kimmel had at least had the foresight to keep his far more vital aircraft carriers out. Furthermore, a carrier task force in the mid-Pacific might have attacked the Japanese task force when its planes were aloft. There are so many possibilities which could have given our fighting men a chance if this information had been made known on the 6th of December when it was known in Washington, D.C. And so, he continues his quotes of General Wedemeyer, Franklin Roosevelt ignored the whole communist infiltration into his administration. Much of it was exposed before his death, but of more importance, he ignored the whole international purpose of communism and its morals in international relations. Its purposes, its methods had been blatantly stated to the world since 1917. Its statements and books were widely distributed in the United States. Franklin Roosevelt was apparently not a communist, but his leanings towards Stalin and his blindness to communist activities arose partly from his own leftist leaning and partly from the usefulness of the communists in support of his administration politically through his 13 disastrous years in office. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's leanings towards Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin and the communists began with a recognition of the Soviet Union immediately upon taking office in 1933, because that was unprecedented that Franklin Delano Roosevelt recognized the Soviet Union's dictatorship as a legitimate government, even though for 15 years beforehand, every Democratic and Republican administration in America had refused to have any relations with a revolutionary Bolshevik government uh, that had turned, multiplied millions of its people to slavery and was murdering uh, tens of millions of others and conspiring against the welfare of all other peoples worldwide. And so by recognizing the Soviet Union and then becoming an ally and then a supplier of the Soviet Union and then, in fact, providing billions of dollars of high-tech weaponry to the Soviet Union without charging them a penny, not a ruble, Roosevelt gave the Soviet Union respectability in the family of nations and also importance. And by that act, he opened the door to communist penetration and conspiracies in the United States and saved the Soviet Union from being overthrown in Operation Barbarossa. So in Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed, General Douglas MacArthur's views are reported that the whole Japanese war was a madman's desire to get us into war. And the madman that uh, Douglas MacArthur is referring to is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. General MacArthur, who's no dove, as we know, he's a hawk, but he was convinced that the financial sanctions that America imposed against Japan in July 1941 were provocative. And Japan was bound to fight, even if it was suicide, unless these sanctions against Japan could be removed because the sanctions carried every penalty of war except killing and no nation of any dignity could endure such economic warfare from the American government for long. So General MacArthur said Franklin General Roosevelt could have made peace with Kuniyai, that's the Prime Minister of Japan, in September 1941. He could have obtained all the American objectives in the Pacific and the freedom of China and probably Manchuria. Kuniyai was authorised by the Emperor to agree to complete withdrawal from China, if necessary, to maintain peace with America. General MacArthur was bitter about Franklin General Roosevelt's Starvation of supplies to him at a time when the whole fate of the South Pacific and all the allies in Asia was at stake. Roosevelt showed his vindictiveness in many ways, including by abandoning the American troops in the Philippines, uh, in Bataan, and uh, Corregidor. And as we know, most of them died in captivity in the harsh conditions that existed during the war. General MacArthur also said that he told. President Roosevelt's peace could have been made with the Japanese any time after the Philippines were taken. With their supporting leagues cut off, they were beaten. He said Roosevelt was determined that he could not command in a final movement of Japan, and so Roosevelt was being vindictive against MacArthur because of him opposing the war in the first place. General MacArthur declared, we would have avoided all the losses of the atomic bomb and the entry of Russia into Manchuria had the Japanese peace overtures been accepted in early 1945. Japan wanted peace and it was necessary to drop the bomb. And this is the conviction, not only of General MacArthur, but of all the military leaders on the United States at that time. So General MacArthur told President Herbert Hoover in 1946 that Truman's policies were enabling the Soviet Union to make a puppet out of Manchuria and betraying all of China and Mongolia to communism. In September 1944, John Flynn, a member of the America First Committee, published the truth about Pearl Harbor. And in it, he quoted Rear Admiral Frank Beatty, who at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack was an aide to the Secretary of Navy, Frank Knox. He testified, prior to 7 December, it was evident to me that we were pushing Japan into a corner. I believe it was the desire of President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill that we get into war as they felt that their allies couldn't win the war without us. And who's the allies? Britain and the Soviet Union. And all our efforts to cause the Germans to declare war on America had failed. The conditions we were imposing on Japan were so severe that we knew that nation could not accept them. We were forcing Japan so severely that we knew that she would react violently towards the United States. All her preparations in a military way, and we knew the preparations, all pointed that way. We knew the war was coming. So that's Rear admiral Frank Beattie. Jonathan Daniels, the administrative assistant of Roosevelt at the time of Pearl Harbour, presented an eyewitness report. The blow was heavier than he had hoped it would necessarily be, but the risks paid off. The loss was worth the price. Now, this is quoted in 1941, Pearl Harbour Sunday, the end of an era, that uh, here's Roosevelt's main administrative assistant saying it was worth the price. The loss at Pearl Harbor was worth the price. In Day of Deceit by Robert Stinnett, a memorandum prepared by Commander McCullum stated that a memorandum issued in the immediate pre-war period declared that only a direct attack on U.S. interests could sway the American public or Congress to favor direct involvement in the European war. So Anderson and Secretary Knox gave eight specific plans to aggrieve the Japanese Empire. If, by these means, Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. That's a quote from the McCullum Memo of 7 uh, October 1940, which remained unclassified until 1994. <coughs> so, Admiral James Richardson was fired by President Roosevelt for complaining about the president's order to station the Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor. Admiral Richardson blamed the president for the initial defeats in the Pacific <coughs> as direct, real, and personal. Richardson believed that stationing the Pacific fleet in Pearl Harbor made the ships extremely vulnerable to attack and provide a poor non-strategic advantage because just one ship sunk in the harbor um, mouth and you could bottle up the entire fleet inside this um, Small harbour which had the most narrow opening to the sea, so it it was a very unwise general who had put his whole Pacific fleet in such a vulnerable position. No reasonably informed person. Now I'm quoting it from British historian Captain Russell Grenfell. He's the author of Main Fleet to Singapore. So, uh, Captain. Russell Grenfell said, no reasonably informed person can now believe that Japan made a villainous, unexpected attack on the United States. The attack was not only fully expected, but was actually desired by the administration. It is beyond doubt that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to get America into the war, but for political reasons was most anxious to ensure that the first overt act of hostility came from the other side, for which reason he caused increasing pressure to be placed on the Japanese, to the point that no self-respecting nation could endure without resorting to arms. Japan was meant by the American president to attack the United States. As Mr. Oliver Littleton, the British Minister of Production, said in 1944, Japan was provoked into attacking America's Pearl Harbor. It was a travesty of history to say that America was forced into the war. Captain L.F. Stanford, U.S. Navy, in charge of the communications security section of the Naval Communications Washington, testified before Admiral Ward On December the 4th, 1941, we received definite information from two independent sources that Japan would attack the United States and Britain at 9 p.m. Washington time, 6 December, 1941. We received positive information that Japan would declare war at the United States the next day. The information was sensitive, it was positive, it was unmistakable, and was made available to military intelligence at the moment of its decoding. Finally, at 10.15 a.m. Washington time, 7th of December, 1941, received positive information from Signal Intelligence Service, War Department, that the Japanese declaration of war would be presented to Secretary of State at 1 p.m. Washington time that day, which was 1 p.m. in Washington, but daybreak in Hawaii. Approximately midnight in the Philippines, which indicated a surprise air attack on Pearl Harbor in about three hours. President Roosevelt had ample time to broadcast the warning. And so if you've seen the Torah, Torah, Torah film, it shows that the uh, Japanese are waiting in the waiting room to see the American Secretary of State uh, and be ushered in to deliver the declaration of war. But they were forced to stay waiting outside until uh, the Secretary of State let them in, which was after he had confirmation that the attack had started. And so this idea that the Japanese didn't, uh, deliver their, their declaration of war in time is half true. One of the reasons they weren't able to deliver the declaration of war in time is the Americans knew they were doing it and delayed them to make sure that they were only able to enter office once the attack had begun. And so uh, it's, it's really dishonest the way this narrative is often presented. Now, an army inquiry conducted July to October 1944 condemned the negligence by General Marshall and the other senior officers for having prior knowledge of the attacks from the intercepts, and for not having alerted the military commander at Pearl Harbor or the naval commander. Congress was not satisfied with the military investigations and reports. And from November 1945 to May 1946, the congressional Pearl Harbor investigation uh, by Senate members of the committee condemned the endeavor to, to throw as soft a light as possible on Washington and accused them of a cover. So... This was almost from the beginning. People were recognizing this is a cover-up. The Roberts Commission report was so hasty, so inconclusive, so incomplete. Some witnesses were examined under oath; others were not. Much testimony was not even recorded. Several records are missing. The most inadequate explanations were supplied. Army and Navy information indicated growing imminence of war, delivered to the highest authorities, including the President. The fatal error of Washington was to undertake a world campaign and world responsibilities without first making provision for the security of the United States, which was their prime constitutional obligation. High Washington authorities did not communicate to Admiral Kimmel and General Short, they were the ones on the ground in Pearl Harbor, any information of diplomatic negotiations and of the intercepted diplomatic intelligence, which, if communicated to them, would have informed them of the imminent menace of a Japanese attack in time for them to fully alert and prepare for the defense of Pearl Harbor. The failure of the authorities in Washington, D.C., to perform their responsibilities, which was indispensably essential to the defense of Pearl Harbor, rested upon Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Henry Stimson, Frank Knox, and George Marshall. Now, George e. Marshall's chief of staff, Frank Knox was Secretary of the Navy, Henry Stimson, I think, was Secretary of Defense, and Frank Delano Roosevelt, of course, was American president. And so, in Freedom Betrayed, President Herbert Hoover. Indicts these top leaders of the United States as a guilty of criminal negligence in willfully withholding information that was absolutely essential to the commanders in Pearl Harbor. And then they have the audacity to fire and court martial uh, Admiral Kimmel and General Short for what they had plainly wanted them to have to suffer. And they'd withheld from them the information that they needed. So, George. Morgenstern, in his book Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War, published in 1947, wrote, With absolute knowledge of war, they refused to communicate that knowledge clearly, unequivocally, and in time to the people in the field upon whom the blow would fall. Pearl Harbor provided the American War Party with the means of escaping dependence on a hesitant Congress in taking a reluctant people into an unpopular war. Pearl Harbor was the first action of the acknowledged war and the last battle of the secret war, upon which the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration had long since embarked. So the secret war was waged against nations which the leadership of this country had chosen as enemies months before they became formal enemies by declaration of war. It was waged also by psychological means, by propaganda and deception against the American people. The people were told that acts that were equivalent to war were intended to keep the nation out of war constitutional processes existed only to be circumvented by FDR's administration, until finally the war-making power of Congress was reduced to an act of ratifying an accomplished fact. Herbert Tuver, who was once President of America, declares in his book, Freedom Betrayed, it should never be forgotten that three times during 1941, Japan made overtures for peace negotiation. America never made one unless a futile proposal to the emperor the day before Pearl Harbor if that could be called a peace proposal. A peace could have been made in the Pacific. It could have saved China. And would have protected the United States Pacific flank. If FDR was still determined to carry on his undeclared war with Germany until it provoked reprisals, that Pacific protection was only was the only sane course. It would have limited our engagement in any case to the European theater. As a result of his policy of having an undeclared war upon Japan, we suffered the greatest military defeat in our history with immeasurable consequences. So public opinion was overwhelmingly against America being involved in the war right up the day of Pearl Harbor. America came into World War I 33 months after its outbreak. She came into World War II 27 months after it started. The processes and the months of lag were the same. The appeal to crusade for freedom, for independent nations, for lasting peace, The same pictures of atrocities, most of them fake, the fanning of hate, and above all, the massive lies and stimulation of fear of invasion, which were completely fabricated. All of these were identical. But in World War II, President Herbert Hoover says, the people believed much less of the government's narrative, and they believed much more they were being deliberately pushed to war. They dimly recognized that they were being ground in the mills of power politics and the personal ambition of men like FDR. The First World War had been conducted in the Allies side in the name of the peoples. This war was in the name of Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt. At times the whole political and military scene seemed a personal property as it was. Now that's written by none other than President Herbert Hoover in Freedom Betrayed, which book was suppressed for over 60 years by the US government before it was allowed to be published only in 2011. In the First World War, our sons marched to war with flowers and their rifles, bands and cheering people on every platform. But there were no bands, no flowers, and no cheering on railway platforms to World War II. There was little sing of war ballads by soldiers or civilians, except at the urging of paid conductors of propaganda. The station platforms were stages for grieving and tears. The promises, the speeches, the propaganda filled the air, as in World War I. But this time, the people received it grimly and with little believing." All that written by Herbert Hoover. President Herbert Hoover in Freedom betrayed also documents that Roosevelt's contemptuous refusal of Prime Minister Connolly's proposal for peace in the Pacific in September 1941 was a lost opportunity. The acceptance of these proposals was prayerfully urged by both the American and British ambassadors in Japan. The terms Connolly proposed would have accomplished every American purpose even possibly the return of Manchuria. Even this was thrown open to discussion. The cynic will recall that Roosevelt was willing to provoke a great war on his flank over his remote question of Manchuria. And then at the end, he gave Manchuria to the communist Soviet Union of Stalin and North Korea for good measure. So they used, the only reason why they uh, justified the war with Japan was apparently Manchuria, Uh, But at the end of it, they handed Manchuria to the Soviets, which was far worse. It sort of reminds one of how Britain claimed to win the Second World War to save Poland and end up by giving Poland and the whole of Eastern Europe to Stalin's Soviet Union, which was vastly worse. It just shows the thinness of the narrative and the cynicism and duplicity and absolute hypocrisy of those claiming to fight for freedom. Herbert Hoover documents in Freedom Betrayed that American military officials strongly urged FDR to accept the three-month standstill agreement offered by the Emperor of Japan in November 1941. Japan was justifiably alarmed at the threat of the Soviet Union, which was a clear and present real danger. And a 90-day delay could have kept war out of the Pacific. Japan, after all, was the main force fighting, military force fighting against communism in Asia, just as Germany was the primary force fighting against communism in Europe. And so Japan was justifiably alarmed. And Secretary of War Stimson in his diary described that Roosevelt and his officials were seeking for a method to stimulate, provoke an overt act of aggression from the Japanese to justify America going to war, not so much against Japan, but to save the Soviet Union, which was in dire peril at the time from Operation Barbarossa. So then Secretary of State Hull issued his foolish ultimatum and we were defeated at Pearl Harbor. By FDR insisting that the Chinese Premier Chiang Kai-shek include Mao Zedong's communists in a coalition government, and Roosevelt's secret agreement at Yalta to portray Mongolia and Manchuria to the Soviet Union, future generations were betrayed into communist slavery. All of China was sacrificed to the communists in the years of President Truman, at the insistence of his left-wing advisers and General George e. Marshall. The Second World War ended with 450 million Asiatic peoples betrayed under communist dictatorship. Herbert Hoover also writes in Freedom Betrayed, I had warned the American people time and again against becoming involved in a European war. I stated repeatedly its only end would be to promote communism all over the earth, that we would impoverish the United States and the whole world. The situation in the world today is my vindication, writes Herbert Hoover. Despite these physical losses, however, and these moral political disasters and these international follies, despite their drift to collectivism, despite the generous generation in government, despite the demagogic intellectuals, despite corruption of government, despite the moral corruptions of our people, we still, in the main, hold to Christianity. We still have the old ingenuity in our scientific and industrial progress. We have 35 million children marching through our schools, two and a half million in our institutions of higher learning. The promise of a greater America abides in the millions of cottages throughout the land, where men and women still believe in freedom. In their hearts, the spirit of America still lives, and the boys and girls from those homes will one day throw off these disasters and frustrations and will recreate America again. That's all is from Herbert Tuva. So here we are at the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and it's important that we learn from it because it's not like governments have changed that much. They still lie. They still have false flag operations. They still twist the narrative to justify uh, unjustifiable policies. And so I think it is very educative, extremely worthwhile to look at the real story behind the attack on Pearl Harbor 80 years ago. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. Yes, it is. It is so important because so much history gets um, this forgotten and the history that's forgotten which is the mainstream history has uh, been distorted as well um there's so much that goes back so far that we're just told lies about and told that this is our history and um with everything going on in the world today with the lockdowns and masks and all these different things and are we going to be forced to get a vaccine i mean we're talking about in austria i've been hearing stories of um, that people are going to be jailed. The plan is, is that they're, they're going to get to a stage in February, I think. It was a leaked document, so we don't know if this is just someone scaremongering to try and get clickbait, but the plan is literally to jail people who will not get the vaccine. Um, and uh, it's absolutely shocking what's going on in the world, and I've said before that this seems to be some sort of endgame, but it all links back to these sort of events, you know, because obviously America needed to get into the second world war uh, because Germany was too strong and so they needed another big power to fight Germany you imagine if Germany had defeated communism the sort of world we'd be living in today and I don't think there'd be anything like what we're going through so communism is the order of the day that's what was the order of the day back then and it's what we're seeing today communism is a tax on free speech it's um you know putting the state above god all these different examples, and that's what I regard. That's why I regard the um, the Pearl Harbor attack to be so significant. Because without it, America wouldn't have entered, or had the excuse to enter the Second World War. They might have come up with something else, but um, it was important in order to defeat Germany. What are your thoughts on that, Peter?
1: Yes, um, as has been well documented uh, in uh, David Irving's uh, book on Hitler's War. Uh, And also in the Bad War uh, by uh, M. King, uh, that uh, Germany was doing everything to resist the provocation of Roosevelt's um, attempts to get uh, Germany to fire back because the US Navy was firing on German ships, they were blockading German ports, they were helping the British, they were supplying the Soviet Union. So they were doing all sorts of acts of war. They had invaded. Uh, neutral countries like Persia and Iceland to assist their uh, vast amounts of um, a transfer of, of weaponry and other support to the Soviet Union. And so uh, one thing that should shock anybody is the fact that when America was attacked at Pearl Harbor in 1941 by Japan, America put 90% of their manpower and weaponry into Europe to go and save the Soviet Union. Now, you would have thought that if they attacked in the Pacific, the war was in the Pacific, and they should have put most of their attention on fighting Japan, if if the narrative is true, that, you know, here is America minding its own business, uh, peaceful, unexpected, uh, unexpecting anything negative, and suddenly they treacherously, unexpectedly attacked a Pearl harbor. Well, at that stage, you would imagine America would have put their entire military might to the Pacific in order to deal with the situation uh, in the conflict with Japan. But no, not even 10% of America's manpower and weaponry went to the Pacific War. And here was General Douglas MacArthur on the Philippines with an American army that was literally running out of food and bullets and bandages and medicines and they were they were dying of starvation and unable to fight anymore and they were finally after months of courageous holding out at Corregidor and Bataan they ended up having to surrender because they had nothing more to fight with and they had no more food, and they were starving and dying of diseases. And most of them died in, in uh, the uh, internment camps during the war. So uh, this was very treacherous to think that if, if you, were, you would have thought the American government's first priority is to help their troops and their citizens. And here was the Philippines, plainly an American responsibility, with an American army there, and they just get abandoned. And what could possibly be more important – then America helping American forces in the Pacific theater where they've been attacked. Well, we know the answer to that one. Uncle Joe Stalin was under attack and the Soviet Union was about to fall. And that was the highest priority. And that's why vast amount of America's arsenal for democracy churned out weaponry to go and supply the Soviet Union with multiplied millions of tons of tanks and and aircraft and bombers and fighters and weaponry and millions and millions of shells, tens of millions of shells and hundreds of millions of bullets and vast amounts of weaponry. It just staggers the mind when you look at all that Lend-Lease did. And even Britain gave 4,000 hurricanes and 1,000 spitfires uh, to uh, the Soviet Union. You know, we thought that Britain was short of fighters, uh, but they could give so many to the Soviet Union. And even Canada giving billions and billions, not just in in Uh, wheat and food to feed the Red Army, but uh, uh, boots and buttons and bombs and tanks and uh, the generosity of Canada, United States and Great Britain to the Soviet Union. You would have thought that the priority was to care for the uh, eastern, uh, I should say the western seaboard of the United States and Canada and protect North America from Japan. But no, their highest priority, as you can see by follow the money, follow the manpower, follow the weaponry, it all went to Europe. America was not under attack in Europe. America was theoretically under attack in in the Pacific. Of course, they provoked it and they wanted that war, but they barely were interested in Japan, and they didn't do that much in the Pacific, really, uh, compared to what they were doing in in Europe, uh, until Germany was utterly defeated. Only then was America shifting the full attention towards Japan. So this just shows the priority. And so when the narrative is, we must put sanctions on Japan because she's so concerned for Manchuria, um, and in the end, they betray Manchuria to the hands of the communists. Uh, and uh, just like Britain, we're so concerned for Poland, uh, that's why we've got to go to war, destroy the empire, bankrupt the British empire, and so on, have this ruinous war, and at the end, betray Poland to the Soviets. So, well, the narrative doesn't fit. But if America was forced into the war because of an attack on, on Pearl Harbor by Japan, Why did they put 90% of the manpower and weaponry into Europe? And why did most of the arsenal of democracy go to the Soviet Red Army, which hardly was a democracy? So the narrative doesn't fit, and that's why 80 years after we need to be questioners. But of course, the important lesson to learn here is that governments lie. Um, Politics, poly, many ticks, blood-sucking parasites. Poly, ticks, many blood-sucking parasites. And these, uh, Mm -hmm. as General uh, George Patton said, the lowest life form on earth is a politician and the lowest form of politician is a social democrat. And uh, he would know (laughs) because he dealt with him. He he is a victim of uh, FDR's policies. And so if you can see how the governments have lied before about these matters, that only now are many of these facts coming out. And in fact, a whole of the documents are still sealed. Then how much are we being lied to today about things like, for example, the coronavirus? and uh, the um, Wuhan Biological Warfare Laboratory, and the New World Order, and the vaccinations, and so much more. So one thing that history should teach us is many governments are treacherous. And I'm afraid the British and American governments have a track record of treachery, almost second to none. And that's why our good friend, Jonas Zavimbi, a Freedom fight in Angola said, it's better to be America's enemy than America's friend. If you're America's enemy, you will probably be bought. But if you're America's friend, you'll certainly be sold. That's a very sad commentary, but unfortunately, uh, it's borne out by history. The treachery of the U.S. government, staggering. We're not speaking against American people here, as, as you know, or, or the armed forces. But the treachery of the politicians at the top, especially the Democrats, absolutely staggering. Although, as we know, false flags are not limited to them. But it does seem the Democrats have uh, done the lion's share of getting America into these worthless, no-win overseas wars. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And the other um, cost of this war is to the Japanese who lived in America. And uh, they were put into concentration camps, folks. How many of you heard of the Japanese who were put into concentration camps? Well, there were... 120,000 of them put into concentration camps in America, but you never hear about that. I've got this from uh, my book, Synagogue of Satan. This is in the updated version, the one that's available. Um, I found it out from a book by Gus Russo called Supermob, which is an excellent book. Um, I'll just read this. We've got a few minutes left. On June... Let me see what year we are. 1947 on june the 1st 1947 david lionel bazalon a jewish tax attorney is made director of the office of alien property the oap in the truman administration this gave him the responsibility for disposing of domestic land and assets seized from enemies of the united states during world war ii and that was predominantly the japanese naisai um and um bazalon said of this new role that he was appointed to the director of the office of alien property which we'll refer to as the IAP he said I'm probably in a sense one of the largest businessmen in the country on top of that I'm my own lawyer The methods at Bazelon's disposal could have been to either put the property out to the market for sealed bidders or negotiate with preferential buyers, and it was the latter approach that he adopted. Having within his control the fate of over 400 businesses that were worth nearly $300 million, which equates to nearly $10 billion today in their tangible assets alone, Bazelon presided over one of the largest thefts in history – In this, he was assisted by J.A. Pritzker, heir to the Pritzker fortune, whose year-long residence in the expensive Willard Hotel political commentators could not fathom when they related it to his comparatively meagre salary. Maybe if they realised the real money was in the property Pritzker was awarding to himself, for example a knitting machine company seized by the RAP which he purchased for $73,000 that was said to be worth $1 million, the situation would have been clarified. Mazalon, however, was involved in far more grandiose schemes, enlisting the help of Jewish supermob associates Alex Greenberg, also known as the Comptometer, a Chicago loan shark who specialised in high compound interest before it was adopted and legitimized by credit card companies, and Paul Ziffran, a Chicago attorney. The bulk of the land and assets were sold at fractions of their true value to the Jewish supermob, whose primary business of owning hotels in Las Vegas must have been well served with the over 1,200 seized from the Japanese Nisei by the OAP. It would take over 40 years for this crime to be exposed and then only superficially when on August the 10th, 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed House Resolution 442 providing restitution for the wartime internment of Japanese-American civilians. This bill paid $20,000 to each of the 60,000 Japanese survivors of the 120,000 that were put into concentration camps. That gives the total paid out by the United States government or rather the United States taxpayer, of $1.2 billion, which equates to $2.2 billion today. Uh, why mm. they didn't go to the Pritzker family and these people that profited on it that are still uh, w- extremely wealthy today, well, we know why they didn't. But um, it's worth throwing that in because that's the human cost of Pearl Harbor as well. Japanese civilians working in America being having their property seized from them and having to wait 40 years by which time uh, half of them were dead. It doesn't say anything about their descendants getting anything. And I wonder if the people who cry about concentration camps the most would be happy with a one-off payment of $20,000. End of story. Uh, Peter, back to you for your comments.
1: Well, um, being a South African, um, we know about concentration camps. They were pioneered here Uh, by the British Army, sadly, in the anglo boer War of 1899 to 1902. And Winston Churchill wrote very positively of of this in in his uh, books about supporting the Kitchener Scorched Earth campaign and the concentration camp policy, in which uh, the death toll was so high that a quarter of the population died each year so that um, within four years, everyone in the concentration camp would be dead statistically. And they deliberately put... Uh, the women and children of families where the man was known to still be in the field fighting against the British and the commanders um, uh, on uh, half rations so that it was below starvation rations and the medicines weren't available. Soap was considered a luxury and not provided to the camps until Emily Hobhouse made the battles. And I can show you the most horrific pictures of skeletal uh, 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 women and children um, looking worse than anything you've ever seen from the typhoid ridden book and vault. Um, Uh, in South African camps. If you go to the Anglo-Boer War Museum in uh, Bloemfontein, South Africa, you'll see the names on the walls of every man who died in the war and then on another wall, the names and dates and places of all the women and children who died in the British camps. Six times more British, uh, six times more Boer women and children died in the Anglo-Boer War than men. I mean, what kind of war uh, targets the women and children to that extent? Six to seven times more than the men And uh, uh, that crippled our population, which is why we are a minority in our own country today, because of the uh, hideous. And this was documented by Stephen Mitford Goodson in his book, Genocide of the Boers, which he identifies as it was a prime goal of the Rothschilds to gain control of the country, which has most of the golden diamonds in the world at that time. Um, He wanted to genocide out the Boers and got the British Army to basically be his um, mercenaries to achieve this through methods of barbarism, to quote from Emily Hophouse, was a brave British woman who exposed all this. So, you know, when, when people hear about concentration camps, one image pops up in their mind, that's the evil Germans putting poor Jews into concentration camps for no reason. Uh, but there's, uh, <laughs> I don't seem to recognize, the vastly greater Gulag archipelago of, of tens of millions of Christians put into concentration camps in the Soviet Union, and, uh, of course, British concentration camps, anglo War, or American concentration camps for Japanese Americans, even Americans born of Japanese descent in America American citizens, they just stripped them of their citizenship rights and threw them into concentration camps. This is quite heinous, but why should this be a surprise to so many people? It's because we've been fed a narrative, which is obviously propaganda, and these are inconvenient truths. <laughs> so uh, beware the victor's version and... Um, Uh, the truth will set you free back to you Andrew
0: thank you Peter and before we go just very quickly um, what can you tell I mean the human cost for America now um, I'm not familiar with the full story but it was something to do with um, you know one of their boats um, being sunk by the Japanese and a lot of them being eaten alive by sharks can you tell us that briefly
1: well, uh, during this uh, attack, um, the Americans lost a vast amount of ships and over 2,000 sailors uh, killed in, in the attack. Um, but, uh, of course, during the Pacific War, there was a lot of uh, loss of life, uh, especially in the Pacific where, yes, ships were sunk and sailors were um, literally battling for their lives with sharks. Uh, that did happen over and over. So that you look at all this, none of that loss of life and that sacrifice, and you can only admire the courage of the people who who um, uh, paid the ultimate price uh, during the war, but uh, on all sides, but the politicians have put them there and they didn't need to. Just like uh, there were peace initiatives by Hess um, uh, in in the name of Germany with Britain, which was ignored. Uh, So there were peace initiatives by Prime Minister Konoye of Japan, which were ignored by the Americans. Uh, And so this idea that, you know, we were inevitably forced into this war, it's just not true. The politicians wanted the war, provoked the war, pushed for the war. And so while we honor and respect the soldiers and sailors and airmen, uh, we should hold to account the lying politicians who in many cases were serving communist gold. And what do we say about the court historians who whitewash these crimes and who uh, patently push a lying narrative year after year to cover up the atrocities? of their communist friends, uh, it's, it's really outrageous. And I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it so well, he said, everyone knows about the supposed six million Jews killed by the Germans, but who talks about the 66 million Christians killed by the Jews in the Soviet Union under Stalin and Lenin. And uh, uh, that's uh, what Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the most famous Russian author 20th century, I'd say. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And uh, before we go, can you please let the
1: audience know how they can contact you and where they can find your work? Yes, my personal email address is peter at frontline.org.za. peter at frontline.org.za for the American uh, ears. And our website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So SA short for South Africa. Frontlinemissionsa.org is our website. peter at frontline.org.za is my personal email.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. Fascinating information as usual. Uh, Folks, you have been listening to the real story behind the attack on Pearl Harbour 80 years ago. I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye.